Welcome to Lab Life with the Air Force Research Laboratory. Hi, I'm Michelle. And I'm Kenneth. Hello, folks. With the 20th anniversary of the September 11th terrorist attacks taking place this year, we spoke with Dr. Stacy Manning to discuss her experiences around the event and how it changed her career trajectory in the fields of chemistry and scientific diplomacy to aid the warfighter both at home and abroad. In three, two, one. Dr. Manny, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Michelle. I'm very excited about today. Yeah, we're really fortunate to have you here today. And we wanted to kick off kind of looking back in time a little bit. You know, we're approaching the 20th anniversary of the terrorist attacks on September 11th, 2001. And we know that that was really a pivotal moment in your life um, and, and in your path. And, and you've been willing to kind of share your experience during that time with us. Absolutely. So uh, yes, September 11th was an extremely pivotal moment, especially for my career, but also just, you know, as a young person, I am from upstate New York, just outside of Albany. And the morning of September 11th, I was home preparing for a PT test. So I had joined the New York Army National Guard in order to help me pay for college. So I was a young person in New York at home, you know, getting ready for a PT test. And that's when I saw the second plane hit um, the tower and it became very clear immediately that this was not just some crazy, terrible accident. Um, and and that's when, you know, things just totally changed. The phone rang, we were immediately activated and we had to go to New York City. I was there to support deployments for re- what we thought were going to be recovery efforts. Um, you know, I, I had visited New York City a number of times during my life, but that experience um, will always stick in my head, just being on the streets and seeing these New Yorkers who are usually, you know, full of energy and life and, you know, busy getting from place to place, just seeming so hollow and shaken and, you know, almost zombie-like, you know, people just stopping on the streets saying, you know, thank you so much for being here and like hugging you. I mean, it was just, it was surreal and so bizarre seeing all of the Um, handmade or computer printed out posters of missing family members. That was, that was so hard. So, so yes, that experience in New York City was extremely difficult those days, but then it, you know, it led into a deployment to Kuwait and then Iraq. And so I spent almost two years in Kuwait and Iraq and, and that was, that was challenging, very challenging. Um, It was between my my junior and senior years of college um, and going to a foreign country, you know, a, a desert, being in a, a non-traditional war zone, meeting Iraqi nationals and just, it was just, it was, it was very difficult. It was, it was very, very hard, very hard being there and interacting with people especially after being so close to ground zero immediately after the terrorist attacks, it was immediately apparent that I was not made to be a soldier. I mean, I did my job. I did my job to the best of my ability, made wonderful friends and, and all of that. But I knew that being a soldier was not going to be for me. And so when I returned 
time was pretty much up and I decided that while I may not be soldier material, I certainly loved soldiers. I loved, um, I loved them for their mission. I loved them for their fearlessness. And so out of college, I planned on working for the army as a civilian, doing things that impacted soldiers in a way that was more suitable for me and my path. I really appreciate you sharing a beyond challenging time in your life, even from a, you know, a deployment um, as a guardsman and, and, you know, to being at ground zero um, and reflecting with us now 20 years later. So you felt this call that like, I want to, I want to serve our soldiers. I want to serve our service men and women. So you had an interest in chemistry and, and is that what you ended up working with the, the army as a civilian for? So I didn't get to work for the army as a civilian. Um, when I was in, I was the unit's um, nuclear biological chemical officer. So I did, you know, the mask fittings and, and you know, talked a lot about the things that we would do in case of, you know, some sort of a biological or chemical attack. And I did find it interesting, you know, some of the countermeasures and things along those lines. And so those were areas that I was thinking about going into. But when it came time for me to, you know, pick a pick a career path, I had already found a love for chemistry. And I had applied to the SMART program. And so that's how I was picked up as a civilian. Initially, I was going to work in Maryland for a wonderful PI who, because of medical reasons, had to retire. And so I couldn't take that position in Maryland working on chemical warfare countermeasures. But there was a PI, a subject matter expert at Eglin, who was interested in my background. And so I pivoted and, and took a job with the Air Force. And so that's when I got into munitions and and all of that, working in, a, in an amazing organization and not working for soldiers. And even sometimes now I'll slip up and call, you know, our airmen soldiers. But, you know, just working for the warfighter in different ways. So I see that transition. And initially he thought you'd continue on with the Army, but through the SMART program, which, a lot, you know, a lot of uh, really great minds in the lab have, have come to work through us through that scholarship and, and employment opportunity. It's pretty cool. But so then you land at the munitions directorate um, of AFRL at Eglin Air Force Base. And then what kind of work were you doing down there? Well, one of the greatest things about the SMART program is while you're finishing, like in my example, my PhD, I got to go there for two summers just to, you know, meet my future coworkers and just ease into and learn what everybody was doing. And so it was a wonderful experience. RW just kind of, you know, gave me like a, a very small project to kind of get a feel for the things that they do. And so I would just go around and talk to, you know, the different people who are working on different things and learn what they're what they're looking at and why and what is this munitions and what are the components and how how does it, you know, come together. And it was during that time that I started finding some of the areas that I found most interesting, um, scientific questions that weren't quite being addressed at the time, or some things that I just felt really passionate about. 
And something that I'm kind of curious of too is um, working in the academic space, there's a lot of uh, access to cool lab spaces and materials, but really if you go to the lab, it's truly state-of-the-art in, well, every sense of the word. So what was it like for you to actually work alongside these experts and have access to these tools as opposed to what you may have had really only staying in academia? Most of the characterization methods were pretty standard compared to academia, but, you know, in academia, it's all about doing the most that you can that has the greatest impact for a publication with like the least amount of money. Where in the Department of Defense, you know, you're working towards a major goal, which has all of these steps from first first principles to, you know, small scale practice to large scale to building it up to sending it off to some company or to industry in order to to do that part of the process. And so, but, but the experts that are available and, you know, the ties that we had to like the Department of Energy and to the other labs, the Navy and the Army working alongside us. I mean, that was that was truly exceptional. And the people who have worked in the field for 20, 30, 40 years. I mean, at Eglin, there were people that have spent their entire careers studying like some fundamental part of that process. And so that was really amazing. Just having access to them. Yeah, I think you hit in a really important aspect, which it's not always just the materials or the lab space, it's the people. Like having access to these people who, like you said, could have been from academia, could have been from other labs, other services, wherever they may have come from, they have a wealth of uh, experience that many books or teachers may not be able to fully express. So it's so cool you could work with, well, that brilliant team and then join it. Absolutely, absolutely. It's the people, you know, it's the people that make any place. They make places wonderful. They can make places challenging. But I had a, an amazing experience, especially for those internships. The people were just incredible. And the mission is incredible. You know, it's so important in having seen things from, you know, a different perspective, not necessarily the same type of perspective as someone who would come directly through academia and then get a job in the lab, knowing that like these things that people are creating and studying and improving have direct impacts in the lives of our warfighters, you know, keeping them alive and, and making sure they make it home. And I'm glad you said perspective, because um, you had a very unique perspective in describing what you did. Uh, you told us that working in the munitions directorate and crafting munitions can be kind of like or feel like baking a cake. So uh, <laughs> and we thought that was very interesting. So can, can you walk through like that analogy and how it pertains to what you did specifically at Eglin? Sure. So, so first of all, my husband is a chef. And so <laughs> in the beginning, we talked a lot about how we pretty much do very similar things. You know, he'll, he'll cook something and, and I'll do something in the lab. And it has a lot of the same types of steps. And I gave a talk at Purdue a few years ago where I compared formulating to, you know, baking bread or baking a cake. And, and so you have um, some part particulates um, in, you know, in my case, it would be energetic particulates or, or some sort of metal fuel. And in his case, it would be, you know, like flour or different, you know, dry ingredients. And then he would use, you know, some binder material where we use polymers and, and he'll use like eggs <laughs> to bind everything together. And then, you know, we'll use plasticizers in our materials in order to keep them soft and flexible, where he'll use water. And then, you know, sometimes 
if uh, he's working in a high humidity place, like we were in, say, Eglin, you know, that the panhandle can be very, very humid. He'd have to adjust the amount of water that he would add. And, and the same thing, we would have to adjust the amount of, you know, the different components that we would add, depending on what was going on in the environment. We had some ingredients that are sensitive to water. And so we would have to compensate for that. Um, and it's funny, in um, in the lab, when the processing team, they're making these energetic materials, they actually use these enormous mixers, like mixers that are used commercially for, you know, baking. <laughs> so, you know, they throw the ingredients in, not throw. They very gently place carefully measured quantities of ingredients in. But I mean, they're these these sheer mixers that are used in the baking industry. So it really does feel and look kind of like like baking a cake. And so there's a lot of science to it, but there's also a lot of art. There's a lot of, you know, these people have had so much experience. This is going wrong. They, they know the little tricks in order to make um, the end product work out just right. And so, yeah, it is like baking a cake. <laughs> Man, now I'm picturing some, like, a giant KitchenAid just... <laughs> Just in the last space at Eglin, <laughs> KitchenAid mixer and a bunch of the the Betty Crockers of the munitions world, I guess. But anyway, I'm I'm, I'm joking here. Yeah, and, and your team was really testing and developing new materials to help improve munitions. Um, could you tell us about that? So my team looked at the surfaces and interfaces in munitions, but you could really apply it to any material, just about any material, any material that is comprised of different components. For example, the cosmetic industry or the concrete industry or the pharmaceutical industry, they're all looking at the same kinds of things. Now, our end use and, you know, the specific things that we're more interested in are, are of course, different, but the fundamentals are the same. We have particulates and then we have, say, binder materials, and we have different additives. And we want to know, one, how do we measure these things? What's important? You know, what's important at that interface? Um, and what properties do we want? Do we want it to be really sticky so that that binder, you know, interacts very strongly with what envelops it? Or, or do we not want that? Do we want it to be able to be just strong enough to mix up and create a material? Um, and then later on, if there's insult or injury, do we want, you know, that particle to separate from that binder? And so the first question was, uh, what's important here? What, what measurements can we make? And then how do we make them? And then what do they, what does this mean? What do, what does the scientific value mean from a chemistry perspective? But then also, you know, a lot of the people who are working on these formulations for the warfighter are engineers. And so they're more focused and more concerned with, you know, performance very important. But how do we move, you know, this chemical calculation or this chemical principle or this chemical measurement? What does that mean? What does that mean for um, the formulator? So we also used a lot of mechanical properties testing in order to understand the performance metrics that we are comfortable with and we're familiar with. And then, you know, novel modeling and simulation efforts to tie those two together so we can move closer towards a more predictive model. You know, so we don't have to waste as much time and money 
building or, you know, going through these iterations of these small scale tests, if we can understand, you know, in the lab, a very, very small mixture that you just do by hand, you get these chemical properties, it'll likely result in these other properties for performance, just to move the formulation into a more predictive area, um, which would be really helpful when you're looking at, you know, new energetic particulates or new additives, new binder systems, things like that. That's great. I, I mean, thinking about that too, your team really ran the gamut of not only, like you said, testing and working with other experts to ensure these are safer to use, but something many folks don't, or something folks don't really consider is transporting munitions as well, whether that be to other locations for testing um, overseas, wherever it's needed to keep people safe. And the fact that your team could help make sure it's safe for use and transport, I mean, that's a huge ask. Absolutely. And, and there are a lot of people who look at, you know, the safety of energetic materials. Our materials are secondary explosives. And so secondary explosives, you don't want them to be too sensitive. You want them to go off exactly when you want them to and not before. Um, and, and we had people at Eglin whose sole job was to work with the Army and the Navy and to address sensitivity issues, to define sensitivity and to make sure that anything that left the final part of, of the process was safe to be handled by anyone because, you know, mistakes happen. These munitions are very large uh, at times and, you know, there are bumps <laughs> and there, <laughs> there are things that happen that you never want to put the warfighter at risk. Another way you've transitioned jobs since your time at Eglin, but you're still helping keep our warfighters safe in a, in a different role. So now you work for the Air Force Office of Scientific Research, which is a part of the Air Force Research Laboratory. But specifically, you know, AFOSR fo focuses on, you know, uh, basic research and funding and making sure we have this, like, the way I look at it, this pipeline of, of technology and innovation and knowledge that is going to move our laboratory and, and support to our warfighters forward. And what's really cool about AFOSR is that they have locations around the world, including one in Santiago, Chile, which is where we're talking to you from now. Um, unfortunately, Ken and I aren't there because that would be really cool because I've never been to Chile. That'd but, be awesome. Yeah. Someday, Ken, we're going to get down there. But so you, they call it SWORD, the Southern Office of Aerospace Research and Development. And that's where you sit now. Um, did you ever imagine that you'd be working from Chile in, in, your, in your career in chemistry? Uh, never, never. Uh, when I was back in the lab, I heard um, a few years into my position that there was an office in Japan. And I was like, that is amazing. I want to work in Japan. Someday, I'm going to make my way to the office in Japan. I didn't even know that there was an office in Chile because we're the, you know, we're the newest office, although we're not that new. I think that the office opened up in 2009. I had been in the lab at RW for almost 10 years and I was really thinking that I was ready for a change and I wasn't sure exactly what that would look like. But there was a call from the chief scientist at RW, you know, that, that the international offices were looking for people to do things. And uh, I think that many subject matter experts or PIs who are in the lab, um, AFOSR is like our gold standard. It's where everybody, you know, would like to work at some point because you are so, so influential in um, directing new projects, funding things. Um, you know, you really focus on a specific area and you just build these collaborations and relationships. So, so AFOSR, 
um, has to be like the greatest job on the planet, in my opinion. But to also be able to do it from like a foreign country, I've always loved to travel. Uh, when I was in graduate school, I did a period of time at the National Institute for Material Science in Japan, and I loved it. But the steward office was looking for, for somebody to come down. And I had some background in Spanish. And in my opinion, Spanish is, a, is an easier language to learn than Japanese. So, you know, as a family, we decided that um, South America was, was where we would like to go. And so I applied. It took almost a year for me to get between that first contact to getting down here. I mean, I, I can definitely agree. My wife took Japanese for a while in school. While it's a very fun language to learn, it, it's not easy, for sure. <laughs> There's a lot of different uh, written forms, a lot of different ways to speak and use the right kanji. You know it. So uh, to hear you found a place that really fit more with, like, you knew Spanish and could make it work. I mean, that's great. It's still, like you mentioned, in the international scene. So uh, we'd love to hear them, what you're specifically doing in the office now, and if you're old or your background in chemistry still kind of ties into it. Absolutely. I mean... Um, you know, when you, you get your PhD, you learn about how to learn a new thing, a whole lot about it, um, a very specific niche thing. But you also learn how to look at the journal publications and the literature to learn new things. And so I, I've gone from being very, very, very narrow in the science that I'm working in to being extremely broad. Um, so that was a little bit of an adjustment. My portfolio is chemistry, materials, and biological sciences. And so really anything can fit into my portfolio. <laughs> I mean, just about anything that we that we are interested in doing can fit into there. But my my job right now, we're, we are not back in the office yet, unfortunately. So I've been working from home for a year and a half, just virtually meeting different PIs, getting to know the universities that are down here, just, you know, working on building relationships, getting an understanding of who's doing what, what is the, the specialty in this area of the world or that area of the world, um, and things along those lines. Just being aware of what's happening so then we can start building collaborations, funding projects that are of interest to um, the Air Force, but mostly building collaborations, relationships, really. Because you're, you're really looking to connect, you know, there's so many brilliant academics in Central and South America. So you're, you're finding out what they're doing and seeing how they would align with Air Force and Space Force priorities in the future and thinking like, wow, this person has an idea. You know, if we build that relationship, you know, maybe with the right funding or understanding of our mission, their research could evolve into something that will really, you know, support our warfighters in the future. Absolutely. And I just returned from a two week trip where I got to go to some of our research labs and meet a number of PIs and subject matter experts from like a broad range of areas, just so that I can get a better feel for, you know, what are they working on? What is of interest? What is the state of the art? Where are, where's there room for, you know, us to fill some technology gaps? Do they have any collaborators or do they know anybody who's done any work down here? So that 
when I come back and I make contact with, say, a new PI or or a new university or department, and they ask, "Well, what are what are you looking to fund?" I can tell them these are the specific things that that we have interest in. These are like the small fundamental principles that can then be tied back into our TDs to meet some need or fill some gap. What we do is really it's really like a force multiplier. You know, the the PIs back in in the TDs they don't have to to um, directly do much other than let us know what they're looking for, perhaps provide some guidance as a subject matter expert or or someone to bounce things off of with the PIs. And they can get as involved or not as they would like. You know, it can become a true collaboration where materials are exchanged or, you know, codes are exchanged or they can directly um, interact on the objectives or the goals or the mission of whatever the project is. And that's, you really hit on a point that I, I want to do a like check, but uh, it sounds like, so if you find these researchers or find these experts in the field that really answer an Air Force ask, like you'd mentioned, it could be anything from uh, biomaterials, working in chemistry, quantum, you name it. So the way you actually connect them then is you contact uh, like technical directorates, the AFRL or the PIs that is saying, hey, I've been looking for this. You're like, well, I found your guy over here. And you're just the in-between that helps bring them in the room together to start the conversation. Exactly. And it doesn't hurt that we have money to fund things and people, you know, are always willing to talk to people with money. So, um, so that we'll get white papers sent to us either um, by asking for them, or sometimes we'll just get white papers, and then we'll immediately try to find some TD expert who can help review them. And then we'll go through perhaps an iteration process where we ask, the PI down here to um, clarify things or or what have you, and then hopefully you know we get to a point where we ask them to submit a proposal, and usually at that point we have some some transition idea in mind. We have somebody back at the lab who um, either gives their thumbs up, this is amazing, awesome, interesting research that could become something that could be applicable, or this is something that could be applicable now. I am always looking for bridging strong connections, whether we're using Windows on Science and we have one of the PIs from down here go up and give talks so that we can start to build that relationship or, uh, or what have you. Having that tech connection and perhaps a collaboration that lives much longer than the grant is really um, something that I get really excited about. And for some of our listeners that um, might be newer to some of these terms, like PI, that means principal investigator, not private investigator, like you know, <laughs> Magnum PI or something. We got Tom Selleck's running around the world or something like that. He was he was Magnum PI, right? Or do I need to cut this joke out, Ken? I'm getting head, uh, head nods. Okay, we're good. We're good, folks. And then um, white papers are just kind of like a general report or a synopsis of, of research that they might think might be relevant. Is that, is that a fair assumption of what a white paper is? Yes, very short. Just a short idea of something that, that they would like to uh, pursue. And something pretty exciting that you're working on, Stacey, is there's this new workshop that's pulling together international teams to focus on chemistry, mechanics, modeling, and simulation, and more. What's going on? So because of my background, uh, I'm really passionate about 
the fundamental question surrounding surfaces and interfaces. And, and I would like to bring that down here so that we can build some international collaborations or um, we could just get a community of people together who are looking at this quest these questions, who are focused on the answers and who can push this, this area of research forward. Um, while I may not be directly hands-on in this area anymore, you know, just being involved still um, still is very exciting. And so I've teamed up with RW with um, some really great researchers, and we put together a workshop that used all of our previous collaborations. So within the Department of Defense, so the Tri-Service, the Army, Navy, and Air Force, and then our DOE, the Department of Energy partners, academia, um, academia from the US, and then academia from all over the world. We had the Netherlands and Germany and um, the UK. We had some people from Mexico, from Brazil, from Argentina, and we all just got together and talked about this is an important area, but what are the most important parts and pieces and what should we be focusing on? And when we publish, what should we be publishing? So, you know, the whole world can compare things. So we're, we're comparing apples to apples. Um, and so we're all just focused, you know, in the same direction. And it's going really, really well. And now we are trying to attach ourselves to the International Research Materials Congress, which occurs each year in Cancun, Mexico in August. And so there is a wealth of material scientists in Mexico. And we do, we do cover Mexico as well as Central and South America. And so it's really a great place for this workshop to live because it is truly international. It's not too far from you know, the TD lab so we can get involved. It's a great place for us all to talk about you know, the fundamental principles, things that apply to all areas of materials. And then you know, we can kind of pull out our piece and modify it for our purposes. By being involved with you know, DOD and academia and, and all of these other people, we can kind of get ahead, all moving in the same direction without putting you know, a, a, a huge amount of um, money and time and effort to get there because we're really at the fundamental level. How do we make these measurements? What's the best way? What properties are the most important? You know, We are really at the beginning. And so this really creates a community where we can all share that knowledge and move this technology area forward. And that really brings the AFOSR mission to a head and a lot of the AFR, AFRL missions, excuse me. It's the idea that we want this international community to work together and have you and our experts out there finding these brilliant minds, brilliant people, brilliant technologies, and working with folks not even just in South America, but I mean, over in Tokyo, in London, like you mentioned, Germany, I mean, you name it. We have people here that have parts of the mission that we may not have considered, or like you said, are helping us work through different ideas that could really change it for their life for warfighters, civilians, and academia moving ahead. So to have something this big and so close to home in Cancun, I mean, that's big. That, that's really big. Yes, I'm really excited about this one. <laughs> <laughs> so, speaking of being really excited, though, um, so you, you brought up a lot of cool terms before, like, again, the baking the cake analogy. And there's another term that you use that really resonated with me that kind of brings a lot of our conversation to a close, almost to a head, if you will. And that's this idea of scientific diplomacy. And that's kind of what your position feels like now. So can you kind of talk about what that means to you and why it's such an important tool within the international space? 
So really everything that we do is scientific diplomacy. When a scientist talks to another scientist about their project, I mean, we just get excited. We get excited about the science, about the possibility. Um, and it, they're fun conversations. They're not conversations that require discussion of politics or, or any of the less pleasant aspects of, you know, uh, cross-cultural exchanges. Um, science to science discussions are easy and, and they're fun, but they also provide positive interaction. There are some PIs that have never worked with anyone from the United States. People might have preconceived notions about us. So just talking, building relationships, and you know, in the process of our normal job, funding grants and, and creating collaborations with our labs back home creates these relationships and these feelings and these ideas, which can be felt long-term from a diplomatic standpoint. We are never going to outspend some other countries, but we can certainly, you know, have lots of friendly, pleasant, scientifically important interactions, which can help in our diplomatic mission. And here in Santiago, Chile, we're actually co-located at the embassy. So we are, we're here as diplomats um, with the army and the Navy. Um, so we do see a lot of the more diplomatic missions, and we do have two officers in our office who who work almost exclusively, while they still are international program officers, they work pretty exclusively military to military, so working some of those higher level. But like at my level, I am just somebody that loves science, talking to other people who love science, regardless of, you know, who is the new president in whatever country or, you know, what crazy things may be going on kind of around us. And it's fun. It's fun and it's exciting to talk about science with people from other places and cultures. But it goes a long way. Yeah, and we love science too. And this has been a lot of fun talking to you on the podcast and sharing your journey from the the tough times to some of the highlights of your career. Probably now you would probably argue you have like one of the coolest jobs ever, which we hear a lot. But uh, thanks for joining us today, Stacy. And we we look forward to catching up with you in the future. Thank you so much. This is so much fun. Make sure to follow us on social media at Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, Instagram, and YouTube at AF Research Lab. And remember, stay curious. Logging off.